I'd like to thank you all for returning for another episode of Who's to Say. If you have not already, please do tune into the previous episode. This is part two in a two-part series about the peril of isms. And the first one I tackled was corporatism, especially here in America. The problems, short-term and long-term, that that mentality and that way of growing has wrought. Uh, And today's episode is about scientism and i hope that's not a new word for you but uh of course we all know good old capital s science it's been the uh a a marketing cry for the last couple of years and in that we should trust the science um and i've i've mentioned i i know before on here uh great quotes from richard Feynman, the the acclaimed physicist who said things like science is the belief in the ignorance of experts meaning Science is founded on skepticism, of course, that you need to continue to hypothesize, test, retest, and, and until you feel like you have a decent understanding of what any of these natural phenomena are. But, uh, of course, I, I, I should address before continuing further why isms are at the, the nexus of this particular podcast and discussion. Uh, it's been part of my own journey to explore various isms. I grew up in Catholicism and conservatism and patriotism, Americanism, whatever you want to call it. And I think for the most part, what isms do is that they exemplify people's needs outside of themselves for a way to live and, and occasionally a reason to live. And I, I, that started to, unsettle me when I thought about my own choices of the ways I want to live and and the reasons for it and trying to embrace some more harmony so that those things come naturally from me and that they're not external suggestions or uh, cultural influences or anything like that. Um, So in my love of things, health and science, I started to look a little bit deeper into where we've landed in the world of scientism. And the ism is attached because I fear that the world of science has become more of an ideology than a field of study or a lens through which we try to better understand the world that goes on even without our understanding, and certainly uh, has always evolved and, and brought us to this point in time. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll start with a, with, a quote, with a quote, excuse me, uh, that I believe I also took from Oneness versus the 1%, uh, because I, I, think it, I think it meshes nicely with the first segment and what we'll conclude with here today. Uh, this is from a Czech writer who's a very outspoken in, in difficult times in, in Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic, uh, Milan Kundera, who wrote that the struggle of people against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. And some of the, I'll be starting in the annals of history, a recent history, uh, to set the stage here because I, I think it, so someone I've once defined it as digital dementia, 
where we have such a reliance on technology, especially on a phone, uh, thinking that I, I don't need to know or commit to memory this thing, this, this phone number, this location, because I can just look it up on my phone. And what I think that has uh, produced is broad digital dementia to the point where we, we have faulty memory. And, and I've seen too many examples of that in the last couple of years of a uh, disconcerting sort of short-term memory loss. And, and I don't know if it's that people are just so anxious and hopeful for a, a better and brighter future. But uh, as they say on the streets, I've been keeping receipts. So um, l- l- some, some bits of history to start uh, that I think set the stage for how we went from a, a scientific world that was humble and curious to this ideology of scientism. And so this is from uh, a great source article that I'll be linking to as well uh, that really sets up a, yeah, I, I'm no further introduction for me so I can begin here. In 1902, Rockefeller funded the establishment of the General Education Board through which he intended to control public education. Other oil-backed schemes to mold and reshape the American education system followed, including a scheme to alter the teaching of American history to promote a view of collectivism, as well as a program culminating in the transformation of the practice of medicine. Naturopathic-based herbal medicine was the norm at that time, and Rockefeller set out to shift the medical industry toward using oil-derived pharmaceuticals instead. In that end, the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research was established in 1901, headed up by Dr. Simon Flexner, who at the time was a professional of experimental pathology at the University of Pennsylvania. Flexner's brother Abraham was contracted to write a report on the state of the American medical education system, and his study, the Flexner Report, published in 1910, paved the way for Rockefeller to completely overhaul the American medical system. The result of this report is that virtually every natural medical therapy was criminalized and all practitioners were put out of business and replaced with, quote, scientific doctors. This was the very beginning of trust the science. Natural remedies and ancient effective cures were dismissed as quackery. The only medicines deemed reputable were patentable synthetic drugs invented in the oil cartel's own research centers. That's an important snippet from the history books for you because, again, I think it's an ideal connection to the incestuous nature of corporatism, that we have this uh, domineering track that says we need to control certain segments of the market. Rockefeller, who, uh, and this is is John Dee, of course, uh, the the infamous... um, they, they were the uh, forefathers of this capitalist society that was all about get whatever you can get your fucking hands on and, you know, and, and capture it and make money for it and be that long-term minded. And so this is a, this is a, this is a diseased way of thinking uh, that had a, a profound impact on, you know, as stated earlier, not only the American education system, uh, but the... Uh, 
the transformation of the practice of medicine. And so I had heard about the Flexner Report through a lot of very successful holistic health practitioners like Paul Cech, who have been doing this for a long time and did not originally pursue a career in medicine because they saw the iron curtain that had been drawn between the medical practice of, and you can, I mean, I, I've had this on authority from doctors who have, of course, gone through the rigors of medical school, and, and I so admire them for that. I have a lot of doctors in my family. I have a lot of love and respect for them. Uh, but the caveat being that what you come out of medical school with is a very uh, broad and impressive understanding of pathology, and the recommended combinations of pharmaceutical drugs to treat those pathologies and diseases. And it is, it's not an especial, you know, the, the joke I just saw, I think Dr. Paul Saladino posting about the other day is you get four hours of nutritional education in med school, like, like real nutritional education of, of, uh, the macronutrients, micronutrients, bioavailability, nutrient density, uh, mechanisms of, of food and things like that. It's, it's shocking, honestly, to think that such little credence is given to that study in medical school. And, and instead, the rest of it is, is trying to understand disease and how you treat it with pharmacological or surgical intervention. And I would never hang that on the, the doctors I know and those I don't know when you understand how much of this began with a dedicated effort from some of the most powerful people in, in American history putting their fingerprint on the medical and scientific industry. So the Flexner Report, was, I, I was alerted by health practitioners uh, because it, it began this witch hunt of, uh, against uh, naturopathy. And uh, really, as I, as I continue to read and unearth, uh, the things that freaking worked for, for thousands of years, th things that uh, re remedies and practices that, you know, it's, it's not like we needed petroleum-based pharmaceuticals to save the day. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, just just why that is and, and how we, there are some, some visuals that I, I will hope to find a way to disseminate in the podcast link. So as always, make sure you go there because I, I do try to give credit where it's due, uh, especially since a lot of these things are not novel to me. Uh, but there's some, some really impressive uh, visual statements of, uh, of just what's gone on in, in the modern era of certain uh, injections or uh, inventions or interventions and their uh, correlation with uh, modern diseases. As I've posted uh, recently, sunscreen and seed oils have a uh, eerie correlation to increases in skin cancer. But I'll put a bookmark in that for the moment to bring you another excerpt from a little bit more recent history. Uh, some of my older listeners might remember the Surgeon General C. Everett Koop, who, from what I understand, brought a level of, uh, I was going to say venerability and uh, prestige and importance to the surgeon. And that was during Reagan's administration in the 1980s. And uh, I think I think they had confirmed at that time that uh, because of the influence of that position, the Surgeon General position, it was the equivalent of a three-star admiral 
in the Navy, which is one of the highest ranking decision makers in the country, uh, especially if you had anything like a pandemic or a health crisis. And so uh, did some great profiling in C. Everett Koop. I mean, thankfully, he was not a silent Surgeon General as others had been in the past. And despite that, even though he was vocal and uh, brave enough to make his recommendations and assertions, one of the things that he resisted from the Reagan administration, interestingly enough, was pressure to speak out against abortion. Uh, apparently the Reagan administration was really trying to uh, coerce him into declaring, and, and it would have been just a declaration, that uh, abortion was universally unsafe. And very simply, apparently Coop's response was that I have no lack, lack of, I have no evidence to declare that and, and state that. So um, he also very courageously brought in the discussion around HIV and AIDS. Uh, he was the first per- person, I mean, first medical professional to publish a report on AIDS when the U.S. was eerily silent, when, when no one knew exactly what was what was going on, why so many young men were, were suffering from this horrible, devastating disease. And, uh, of course, any, any implications on homosexuality or sexuality in general, uh, most people did not want to touch in, in the good days of the moral majority. But C. Everett Koop was, was uh, a man and a leader, certainly not perfect, but uh, I think you can admire the stands he took. And one such stand that he took, uh, even though he likely could have had a longer career as Surgeon General, was, uh, I believe, it was either a year-end or term-end address when he uh, publicly observed that the 9 out of 10 chronic diseases plaguing and killing Americans were lifestyle-related. And the very next day, he resigned. After nearly a decade of steadfast, honest, committed service, had the audacity to declare that disease was lifestyle-related and that you, know, you might actually have some recourse to save yourself uh, if you did things differently. So, uh, of, of course, I'm speculating on why his, uh, his resignation was so abrupt following that statement, but uh, I, my impression of that story is that there are larger forces that don't like those things to be publicly discussed, especially from a person of authority. Uh, So this is all, I mean, I I always thought of medicine as an art that with the, uh, just the, the vast diversity you get in, in any human organism, let alone a population uh, that it's, it's near impossible to make universal predictions and dictates of what to do. Uh, so there, there is an artistry in helping someone uh, r- retain or, or recapture health. And of course, dis-ease is just a removal from your health. And, and uh, your body wants to be healthy. So any sort of resistance to that, any sort of plague or, or outer uh, effect... Your, your body is still doing everything it can to bring you back to homeostasis, to bring you back to a position of health. It is also my understanding that there are lots of things working against that. And, and lifestyle is, is a piece of the puzzle. It is, is more often than not a big piece. But uh, there are also some broader issues, and we've mentioned some of them, with the devastation of topsoil, air, water, 
uh, the uh, uh, violent use of glyphosate, and uh, I will. Uh, I don't quite have the breadth of understanding yet, or the uh, details on hand to share with you. But I, I, a critical video which I will share to social media. It's going to be linked in the uh, podcast notes, but it is Dr. Zach Bush's breakdown of uh, the history of glyphosate and autoimmune and neurological diseases uh, since its introduction in, in 1996. Uh, so there are, there are forces working against people for sure. But w- one other uh, story I think is useful for this uh, corporatism and scientism connection. Uh, the researcher Jamie Oliver uh he, he, I think he's mostly renowned for children's lectures, but he did a study of eight to 10 year, eight to 10 year olds. Uh, I believe this was in the early two thousands. Uh, his study revealed that 90% of the eight to 10 year olds who he interviewed, uh, when, when given flashcards with different symbols on them, uh, 90% of eight to 10 year olds recognize more corporate symbols and logos than they recognize farm animals and fruits and vegetables. And I nearly drove off the road when I heard that in a podcast discussion um, <laughs> because, I mean, I, I'm, I'm gobsmacked by it now to think that children in that developmental phase are so much more familiar with corporate symbols, which don't even, which aren't even real, which don't even mean anything except for shit that they can buy or their, or that their parents can buy or get for them. And those are more recognizable than things that are real and give them life like farm animals and fruits and vegetables. And so what we have there is logos replacing the logos, the logos of the universe, the logos of the universe. And I think you might have to harken back to your, uh, your writing studies, but from the Purdue online writing lab, uh, clarifies that logos is quote, frequently translated as the same variation, excuse me, the Purdue online writing lab clarifies that logos is frequently translated as some variation of logic or reasoning, but it originally referred to the actual content of a speech and how it was organized. And in the broader Joseph Campbell myth and and storytelling sense, Logos is the order and signature of the universe. And so, I mean, in, in this particular example, something more akin to the signature of the universe would be fruits and vegetables, things that come from the earth and order, uh, the, the animals that inhabit it. Uh, we now have corporate logos replacing those things in children's minds. And I can't help but but have a, a great deal of concern for what impending doom that would create for if, if kids cannot associate the importance and significance and vitality uh, that comes from being more in tune with things of this earth as opposed to companies that just make money or make stuff. Um, so as we as we get into some of the more esoteric and emotional elements of, of why scientism is such a problem. Uh, I remember Arthur C. Clarke said that science at a high level is indistinguishable from magic. 
And that's true. I mean, to be, to be able to explain uh, any sort of scientific phenomenon, how uh, it, 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 even though so many of them are... See, this is the thing, though, is, is we think science has figured out so much and uh, it's certainly folly to say that science has invented or discovered anything because, you know, you, you could say, you could, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, you could say Einstein discovered electricity, but that was just a natural phenomenon. I mean, we, we are electric beings. We have the, everything on this earth is elect- electrically charged. That wasn't a discovery or an invention. Just at some point, as Dr. Zach Bush says, the evidence becomes so insurmountable and you get a curious enough mind that it becomes obvious. But that's not to take credit away from brilliant brilliant minds, but it is to say that it is more hubris to think that just because we've proven something within our linear and limited understanding that we fully understand its mechanism. And so it is impressive that I, I agree with that quote that science at a high level is indistinguishable from magic because to the layperson who doesn't understand the uh, the details of it, 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 it is quite astonishing. But the caveat I have to this on a living and natural level is that where magic is not connected to spirituality, as it was in, in antiquity and prehistory, I have my hand now on The Secret Teachings of All Ages by Manly P. Hall, which is absolutely changing my life with each sentence each word, each page, um, it, it is becoming clearer to me how magic was interfused with philosophy, healing, uh, growth, politics, everything. And so where magic is not connected to spirituality, it is an instrument of power. And that is where we, we see the myth and the model of uh, any sort of, that, that's sorcery is when you have people using magic as an instrument of power. And I'll, I'll bring this back to the start of the podcast, talking about corporate Christianity, uh, which was the genius, the, the genus of today's dominance of corporatism. Uh, corporate Christianity, and I, I, I hope I make that distinction emphatically, because there are so many tenets of Christianity that I admire and that I embrace and practice and, and research but corporate Christianity is, of course, something different entirely. It is, it is um, mass appeal, mass marketing. Um, anything, you know, of, of course, there was the financial return, as we discussed earlier. But what corporate Christianity started to do was, especially when they demonized pagan rituals and magic and, and really anyone who didn't agree with Christianity, uh, they removed the spirit from the dealings of earth and, and they made it clear to punish people for the things that they did on earth and make it seem as though there was no spirituality to be had in this earthly form. And so everything you do is for your payday in heaven. And that is a, we've talked so much about separation today. I mean, that, that is a, uh, a chasm of separation that is hard to patch. And so, you know, w- without any connection to spirituality, as you fast forward in modernity, you have capitalism giving way to consumerism. And that has such a stranglehold on, as we've discussed, uh, nation state policy, culture. Uh, I think one other thing that happened as, as part of this segment uh, is that th- there be a, a, 
corporatist and consumerist uh, uh, in, infection appeared in science. And, and we started with the example of Rockefeller, of course, but uh, all of a sudden, science became a commodity. And especially academic science, grants became something you bought and sold. And, uh, and, and this, and that, uh, <laughs> tumbleweeded and steamrolled right into the belief of the scientific mind that their solution or their explanation or their discovery is the exclusive one. And what do you do with something that's exclusive? Well, you patent it and you, uh, stamp it with your intellectual property and you make money off of it. And one policy that I think encapsulates that is the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980, which effectively gave government workers, i.e. university researchers, and that's where the preponderance of scientific research is done, is is now within the universities, thanks in large part to the Bayh-Dole Act, but it gave those researchers uh, the right to claim intellectual properties for discoveries that the taxpayers paid for. So anything federally funded, those scientists, and if they have any private connections or are willing or would be willing to sell to a private interest, they have the right, thanks to the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980, to claim intellectual property for federally funded research that American taxpayers paid for. So of course, the door that this opened was for gross conflict of interest, um, especially wherein unelected people get to lead the charge based on these scientific feedback loops, where, where they're revered just because they claimed financial ownership of a scientific project. That's where people like Bill Gates and these unelected officials, uh, the, you know, of, of course, Bill Gates is not a doctor. He has no formal scientific or medical training. He, he, he also has no, I mean, he is an un healthy, uneducated person. I, I think that's one of my favorite things to do is whenever he's talking, I mute it. Not, not least of all, because I don't think he's speaking to me, but, uh, you can usually tell the, uh, the, the real elements behind what someone is saying just by watching them. And I mean, he knows like 12 words and, and he, and he, he is so unhealthy. And yet, I mean, he is all about scientific and medical research and, so e- even if that's privately funded, I mean, so it, th- that is another double-edged sword as you have privately funded scientific and medical research and that you have federally funded, publicly funded uh, medical research, scientific and medical research, none of which has any remuneration for the people who it's meant to serve. So what this feedback loop creates, and I, and I have this on the authority of people within these communities, is that nothing of meaningful value was produced anymore out of, out of those labs and out of those research facilities because it causes, if, if it is of value, it often causes too much disruption to the system that's in place. So it becomes, this is why it's a positive feedback loop because it's all about the next grant, the next people circle that you have access to, and it's, it's an incentive, it incentivizes the acceptance for peer reviews. And of course, I, so I, I had a terrific really, really kind of launched me on this path of curiosity in the uh, health and science fields. Uh, it was a semester course at UMass Boston, 
And from the first day, I was, I was struck by this professor. He was talking about fasting before it was cool and what it does to your cell health. And uh, I remember he said to us in the first or second class, he said the, the two words that you should be most uh, skeptical of uh, are, uh, in, in the scientific world are studies show. And, and what he meant by that was it's, it's so, especially because it's so hard to have an understanding of study structure. And, uh, again, the, the lay person does not have the acumen to be able to determine, well, they set this, they set this study up in this way. That kind of seems like it has a bent to, to get what they desired. So a classic example, and I, I don't have too much intention to, to speak at length about this today, but if, if you are keen to do your own research on this, if you look at the COVID-19 vaccine studies, not only were they done over a couple of months, which is concerning in and of itself, but the, in terms of their reported efficacy, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't honestly communicated to people, I don't think, exactly what those studies represented. And I think when people saw you know ninety plus uh, efficacy or effectiveness, what they're thinking is this thing is going to keep me from getting the disease, getting sick from it, and or dying from it. And that's just not what those studies were even designed to do. Uh, they were designed to depict a, uh, I, I I believe it was just a either a a reduction in symptoms or or a mitigation of symptoms. Um, and, and, and that, that's quite a loose, uh, description of that. Uh, so it's, it is hard to know the, the real impact and purpose and structure of a study. And so therefore you should be skeptical anyway. You can't just take things on that authority, but, uh, it's, it's a, it, as I said, it's a positive feedback loop that it, it promotes this idea that you need to it, it just keeps people in the world of, of specificity. It keeps people in the lab. It, I think it hinders some brilliant minds from being able to see greater connections and to make disruptions and, and to make especially connections to things outside of there. I, I, I feel so badly for brilliant people who say, oh, I, I'm not an expert in that. And, and oh, that's not my area of expertise. So what? If you have an intellect and a curiosity and a soul, go dive into the deep end. You know, who, who cares what waves you make? Hopefully they're good ones. But, uh, you know, th this is, so th this is all a very mechanistic, uh, scientific way of looking at the world. Uh, another pull from history is a, is a uh, gentleman named uh, J.D. Bernal, John Desmond Bernal, uh, who, who was an Englishman. Uh, in the early part of the 20th century, he wrote this book called The World, the Flesh, and the Devil, and it was his predictions that science should really be the uh, field through which we seek to control the world direction because he saw it going in a, in a wrong way. And uh, he thought science was the, uh, was the way to go. Now, uh, J.D. Bernal was an x-ray crystallographer at a time when that was really cutting edge in the field. Uh, he was also a Stalinist a supporter of Joseph Stalin of Russia, and uh, advised him on crop experiments to effectively, which, which effectively starved a lot of the Russian people into submission and uh, genocide. And so this was a guy who was 
in the early or in the late twenties, rather, uh, was promoting, and he and he was very. I mean, he he lectured at Cambridge, and he was very influential in uh, the London science community. He he really inspired uh, Crick and Watts, Crick and Watson, who were the uh, innovators of spiral DNA imagery. But it was Bernal who was promoting this idea that individuals should seek out an evolution from their biological function to a mechanical function. And this is where we now have the phrase transhumanism, which is that we all should be aspiring to a more, uh, yeah, a, a more mechanical way of living. So it was guys like Bernal planting these early seeds that the dangers to the earth that these, you know, folly, you know, these, these biological humans are creating, uh, creating these dangers that there would be a need for scientific and technocratic classes to leave the earth, not save it. I mean, these people think these companies are, are trying to save the world, these energy companies and these tech companies. Uh, a lot of them are following the guidance that they need to build spaceships to get off the earth. What's, uh, what's, Be- what's Bezos doing? What's Elon doing? I mean, the, some of the best minds are dedicating themselves to how am I going to get off this planet instead of how am I going to help the, the human race return to connection with nature and, and let nature do exactly what it does, which is provide for us and sustain itself. So instead, we have this direction of science that has corrupted the essence of life to being about Technology, technological saviors and mastery over life instead of communing with nature. And I mean, it's just so apparent to me now that these technocrats have no love of nature. They have no plan or commitment to help save nature. They're, they're operating with a, with a much different course of action. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly wary of any corporate entity who vows to be green or, or to do things differently, they, they have no actionable plan to do the things that actually bring life to this world. So, I mean, back to the comment on being wary of study show, saying that something is scientific or proven, it's often a tacit or, or a tactic rather to elicit some type of change. So when, when you, when you start to see uh, that it's proven that, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, cattle, uh, you know, the whole cow fart discussion of, of CO2 emission and that uh, regenerative farming and, and, and meat consumption is, is the reason for our, our climate issues. I mean, it, it's, it's laughable to, to say that those things are scientific or proven. But on, when you, when you zoom out, I, I, what we're talking about here today is the awareness of what's next as we, as we live, our, live fully in the present with a commitment to the future. Uh, th- those are not the beliefs that are going to get us there. So, uh, I mean, th- this suggests that those in power believe that science, like democracy often, ought to be accepted on the basis of consensus. That, oh, this is proven. And studies show and, and, and trust the science. Um, I mean, that, that, is, that does not invite understanding from people. That, do, that does not invite collaboration 
to problem solving some of the bigger issues we have when you say it's already been decided that we need that we need to halt meat consumption and move to uh, lab made food and plant based whatever uh, to save this planet. I I don't I there are a few things I like on consensus. I mean that that is a pervasive issue in culture in uh, education in in things that we think we just understand even though it's just consensus and that that's been a clear uh medium for public health and and this is something i've heard medical health professionals speak on as well is that it is often preferred to have a consensus masquerading as a scientific fact so that you can bring about a desired reaction and, and one of the unfortunate examples of this is when the whole discussion around mass at the beginning to say and it was ironically honest to say, you know, when, when the initiatives coming out of, especially the, the CDC and the white house were no one needs masks. And this was in early stages of, of the COVID pandemic. Uh, no one needs masks. And that was only in an effort. They, they weren't worried about protecting people. That was just because they feared they had a shortage and wanted to make PPE go exclusively to medical personnel. So that's, that's a bit of nitpicking on my part, but, um, I, I, to connect this back to a broader tradition of consensus, uh, I, I will remind you all, not that any, I, I don't think any of us were really living in this time, but science was the origin of racism. It was, it was a scientific consensus with no evidence, with, with no real fact that there were um, disparate biological realities between people of different races. I mean, it, it was one of, of course, we look back now and think it's asinine, but it was the scientific community who was promulgating those types of things. And so you can, you can believe in the world of science. I mean, I, I think it's safe to say that you can, I'm always worried about this. I'm always worried about what's the Venn diagram of something I say where like there's crackpots out there who I know also believe it. But, but they don't believe it for the, the right reasons because uh, there's, there's always that gray area. But, uh, you know, you can say things like, like personally, I believe the climate is changing. And a lot of it is for the reasons that we've outlined here in terms of the, the devastation of soil, air, water. Uh, so I don't, I don't believe the narrative that it's things like exclusively cars and people's meat consumption. So, so you, you balance these things out. But um, I'm, I'm bringing all this to your attention because uh, con connecting these dots is going to be imperative to how we prepare for what's next, how we determine our own sovereignty around how we travel, how we live, how we eat, where we, where we do all those things. Um, and so in, in my own research, I, I have unearthed things like uh, the Rockefeller Institute publishing, uh, of course, Rockefeller features prominently. <laughs> uh, in 2010, the Rockefeller Institute started publishing stories and they were, they were creative stories, but they, they did this f from a scientific institute, uh, again, trying to elicit some change. And they were publishing these stories about not sullying nature with our humanity and moving into these smart cities and glass bubbles so that nature can revive. And they, they tell these stories of, uh, you know, little kids going outside the glass bubble and they wanted to go uh, swim in the river, but there's a sign there that says, you know, you can't swim in the weight in the river because nature is healing. 
and it's so dystopian and and so but that was 12 years ago and like those are the kinds of myths and um kind of subterranean foundations that uh people are calling on to you know now say well well maybe that's just the case i mean maybe we are sullying nature with our humanity and it it, it couldn't be further from the truth so I, i'm personally resistant to too many technological interventions you have things like i mean i'll speak briefly on on the biohacking space i think it's more hubris and foolish to think that you can hack your body yes there are things of, of our lifestyles in our modern world that do work against us uh and and make it hard for us to be natural and primal but it's kind of offensive to the body to think that you can have tech and wearables and these things that are going to outsmart your biological system that is millions of years old uh and, th- and there are i mean i i think aura aura ring for sleep tracking is probably one of the lone um uh, biohacking tech products out there but i think despite their best intentions intentions a lot of these companies have become corporatized and they have been taken advantage of like you know wearing an apple watch i i, I don't see why you need more First of all, I don't understand why you need your phone on your wrist. I understand there's other programs on there, but it's more electromagnetic functions going to your to where your pulse is, uh, just, just back to your body. Um, Fitbit was acquired by Google in 2021. Uh, so all of those Fitbit users, and I, I actually know a couple of you, and I am talking to you here, uh, that data is going to Google. Just like everything, I mean, just like nearly everything else we do, but now you have biological functions going to Google as well, cut and and custom to you, custom to your first name, last name profile. Um, so you know when I when I name drop these corporations, this is my quick disclaimer, I think, on conspiracies. Because I think a conspiracy, a conspiracy can only really be legitimately derided when people make claims with no evidence. And, I mean, to harken back a little bit, it, it, I, when there were claims being made that the coronavirus originated from the Wuhan Institute of Virology lab, I, I had followed the evidence on that. I mean, I knew that Dr. Fauci and Peter Daszak had direct funding relationships with that lab. Uh, that they had issues in the, that they were studying back coronaviruses. Like that was never a conspiracy theory to me because I knew about evidence. And so I, I, I bring this up because, you know, yeah, when I, when I name drop corporations and Bill Gates and world economic forum and stuff like that, I, I know people make that leap that it's just a conspiracy, but it's not that I'm flattered by that, <laughs> but uh, there, there are too many, there, there are too many threads that, that tie together. Um, and, and th- of course, there are always legal implications of conspiracy. Governments, for the most part, historically, are the greatest perpetrators uh, of conspiracy. Uh, I, I, I just shared with someone the book Chaos, which talks about uh, Charlie Manson in the 1960s and, and how unbelievable it was uh, that he kept getting let out of jail, the CIA's involvement in that law enforcement involvement in that, um, 
course, anyone who brings these things to light, like Julian Assange, you know, it's 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 true that went up against the government. Like this is the age we think of misinformation and disinformation, but uh, they don't try to throw you in jail or delete you off the internet for telling lies. They really only do that to people telling the truth, and when it's an inconvenient truth, that's usually when the hammer comes down the hardest. But there, as I said, there are legal implications of, of this, not least of all, that the 1890 Sherman Act, one of our most famous antitrust uh, acts in this country, uh, it, it avails that individuals could sue companies for conspiracies and price fixing and that treble damages are awarded for infractions against, for example, competitive commerce. And you don't need, in, in presenting those cases, the... Uh, the evidence of, well, this is the, the room and the, and the golf club that they met at, and, the, and this is exactly what they said. All you need is evidence of coordinated action. And that, that's from the law as best I understand it. Um, and I, I just wanted to, to toss that in there because uh, I'm, I'm really not trying to speak too far off base here. I mean, these are all things that uh, I, I have seen that, that have been evidenced. And so I, I think it's worth just calling it like it is, saying when something is perpetrated by a Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, a Google, uh, Apple, anything like that. And so to come full circle to some of the more human and personal and spiritual elements of this, uh, the ideology of scientism is saying to people, we will take your enlightenment and replace it with rationale. We will take your inexplicable genius or natural law and replace it with ratio, which is, which is the origin of the word rationale. I'll, I'll broaden this to say that if you take away the luminous light, uh, the intangible, the enlightenment, and replace it with rationale, what you're also taking away is the unrational. So what's something that is un or irrational? Love. It can't be weighed or measured or predicted, and yet it's the most important bonding force in the world. And yet science devalues it because you can't weigh, measure, or predict it. The more illuminated or enlightened someone becomes... They don't fear death. They embrace more love. And they become impossible to control. That's been my experience. Something I've been, I mean, it's one of my greatest pursuits is, is to be more free and in love and uncontrollable. And, uh, and, and hopefully to fear death uh, a little less uh, the more I live. But I, th- I, I think that is profound because that is a lot of people's greatest fear is, is dying or lack of love. And it hinders them. It, it, it dims their light. It dims their freedoms. And it does make them susceptible to greater influences from cultural pressure, from fear of missing out, from uh, you know, the, the ability to signify through their wealth and through their consumption that they are deserving of people's affection. 
And yet, as William Shakespeare reminds us, a coward dies a thousand deaths, and the valiant dies but once. And if you are living in spiritual fullness, full illumination, you have no fear of death. But this process of control, of replacing enlightenment with rationale, uh, I think it creates a fundamental change to being human. And what, what inspired that belief in me is that Carl Jung conceptualized that the self is really all the things around you that are essential to sustain you. Your family, the soil, the solar and lunar systems, water, opportunity, collective consciousness, happiness, love, struggle, healing, health. So if the self is all the things around you that are essential to sustain you, if people stop eating real food, hydrating themselves, connecting to the sun, connecting to each other, moving, then the body will mirror the psyche and you have disease everywhere. If you are unable to regularly connect with the things that sustain you, you have a fundamental alteration to yourself. And so I am speaking out against some of the rhetoric around any sort of separation or disconnection from life. Uh, we've rationalized ourselves into, uh, into scores of borderline evil things and, and evil is live spilled backwards. So anything that I see is backwards or contrary to real life, uh, to, to me, it stands out as, as evil. And science has been involved in the indoctrination of people to believe in the biologism of the world as the only thing to perceive and to manipulate. And that becomes investing sole importance in outer appearance and quantifiable inequity or equity. And it, again, it, it, it extracts and ignores. Someone told me that the soul, the soul is not an, an inhabitant of the body. The body inhabits the soul. You come into this earth, into this world as a soul and, and your body is just your outward representation of that. So, when, when I see science endeavoring to make the natural world our enemy, I see that as a grave mistake. And you, and you see this in the, all of the campaigns against the sun and telling people to, to fear the sun. The sun is what gives us life. It's what gives everything life. Our, our and I'll, I'll be devoting more to electricity another time, but we have chlorophyll-like mechanisms that make use of electricity in our own biology that is entirely dependent on the sun, just as, as plants depend on it for their nutrients. And so anything that, again, fundamentally alters our ability to connect with the things that sustain us, we need to be very in tune to what those changes imply. So again, things that sustain us, our immune system, we live in the virome, it's something like 10 to the 15th power viruses are coursing through us at any given moment. And RNA messages are critical in how, how we then develop long-term immunity. So when you have something like a vaccine that forever changes the RNA messaging, 
And because we live within the virome to create our resilience, both short term and long term, you have just altered the fabric of life with that. When you extract something from a plant, you ignore the other ingredients that may obfuscate its effectiveness and bioavailability. When you inject anything new or artificial, we are ignorant more often than not to the complexities of what that will do within the system. Thinking that you can solve any problem without understanding its root cause alone, but uh, like I said, by injecting or removing something, artificial, pharm pharmaceutical, whatever, by, by ignoring the system, you do that at your own peril because... We, we, what we are trying to gain is a greater consciousness and conscientiousness of, of how, of what our coexistence and cooperation is, especially as an organism. Um, I mean, you know, drugs function on this level too. I mean, alcohol is, the, is one of the few acceptable drugs, but it's an unpredictable drug. And there has been so much, you know, I, I hear the constant refrain when I ask people about their, you know, a glass of wine a day is fine. Is it, I mean, of, of the things that we do every day, are we sure, and I, and I get, wine, wine is not always the best example because it does have some uh, natural capacities. There's definitely some beautiful organic wine out there, but, um, but just what, what these things do in a system over time, especially is not entirely known. Uh, I think of distraction as a drug too, especially when it distracts, detracts from your experience of being alive. It has a fundamental influence on your system and how you how you grow and thrive. And the more you tune into these things, I mean, I, I was just thinking the other night um, how important it is to be in tune with as many of your conscious biological functions as possible to 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 better feel yourself. And I was thinking about this while chewing because chewing is such an underrated part of digestion. And I, I've had my own struggle with, with gut issues that I'm mending as we speak. But uh, I think I neglected for a long time. I, I just, I'm just a hungry cat. I just love to bolt down my food. And, uh, and when, you, when you take a beat and you slow down and you think, what are the implications of any form of this process? I remember I'm supposed to liquefy my food. And sure, it takes a few extra chews. But man... Do I feel better after I'm done eating? Um, so as we wind this down, I, I, so many more thoughts come up. I, I, I'm indebted to you all for taking the time to walk this road with me. Uh, just some reminders that are on my mind that have guided me in this research, in this communication, in my own way. Nature is our only reflection of life. They're not machines. They're not us, but we are also core members of nature. And there are things that we can mirror and come back to that exist only in nature. As I mentioned before, there's a difference between the science of knowing and understanding and science, the institution. It's kind of similar to religions versus man-made institutions. As I've said, there's a lot of endearing qualities of Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Islam. Take your pick. Uh, what men have done to institutionalize and, and structure those beliefs uh, is more often than not too mechanical, too rigid to reflect 
the knowing and understanding of life. I recall from the Tao Te Ching, uh, the, the tenet that when you see the world and your response is to control or influence it and change it in your design, what you're actually doing is creating resistance. Because nature never rushes, and yet everything is accomplished. We don't need more doing, we need more being. We don't need more violence, we need more peace. And so to that end, I mean, I think the perception of the outside world as a threat, a virus, a hot day, change in the weather, our, our programming usually tells us to fight and weaken and protect in order that we feel safe if we see something outside of ourselves as a threat. But in closing, my final word to you all is that we are all connected. There is nothing really outside of ourselves if we give ourselves up to it, if we really reconnect. And that usually requires some unplugging. And I'm, I'm still so grateful that you tuned into this discussion. As I said, it's been on my heart and mind and being for a while now. And I'm exhausted sharing it all with you. But man, uh, we've got lots to talk about um, because we are connected and we're, we're more alike than we are unalike. So, and yet the, <laughs> the, uh, the uh, flip to that is that we're all so diverse and so different. And that's what makes us so special. And uh, it's a big reason why I'm doing this, bringing you my unique perspective on these things. But there are a lot more realities that we can perceive and create. And I see it as mostly being beautiful and healthy and happy. And I can't wait to be there with you. So thank you again for tuning in to Who's to Say. I'm your host, Tom Foolery, and it has been a pleasure and a privilege to share this discussion with you.